today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We've talked about this many times on the program, and of course, it's it's about misinformation. Uh, it's difficult enough to try to deal with the pandemic and the impact it's having on our personal lives and professional lives, for that matter, as well. Uh, but when you're inundated with misinformation and, and it, you don't know which is which in, in a lot of these cases, uh, it can really obviously sway public opinion and, and our perceptions as to what we should be doing uh, to try to combat this. And uh, uh, to that end, uh, we need to deal with this. There's been a lot of study done about this in the last year, especially since we've been into lockdown. Elizabeth Bra, who's a visiting fellow at AEI, explains that misinformation in the media has actually led us to situations like the Capitol riot on January the 6th in Washington. The situation we have now, we can see that news and we can share it, and th- there are no consequences if we share incorrect information. That's how we have arrived at the situation where we are now. But we have not just differing views, we have differing realities, which is why we saw the results at the Capitol on the 6th of January, where these people were convinced that they were right, that Trump had won the election, and we can say, oh yeah, they were reading disinformation, listening to disinformation. Well, they were sure that they alone had the real truth. Yeah, anybody who posts something on social media seems to think they have the real truth, and that is part of the problem. Uh, There's a a fascinating study that has been done on this, Infodemic Pathways, evaluating the role that traditional and social media play in cross-national information transfer. Uh, One of the co-authors of that, Angus Bridgman, uh, is a Ph.D. candidate in political science at McGill, joins us to talk about this. Uh, Thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. You, uh, You categorize this as an infodemic. Maybe you could explain that to our listeners. Yeah, so an infodemic is actually a term used by the uh, World Health Organization at the beginning of the pandemic. And the idea there is that there's sort of the physical pandemic that spreads internationally, but there's also this infodemic. So that's mis- and disinformation regarding the pandemic that has spread and gone viral in much the same way a virus or a physical virus would. Uh, and it's it, it has reached pandemic proportions, really, hasn't it, in the last 12 months? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we've been tracking this stuff since the beginning of the pandemic, and it's certainly been, uh, you know, an enormous problem. Well, and, and th- I, I was fascinated to read your piece, by the way, about this, because you guys have ex- done extensive research on this uh, to try to understand exactly what we're dealing with here and the impact that it's having. Uh, and, and explain to us exactly the methodology that, that, that you and, and your, your, your fellow authors went to, to put this whole thing together, because obviously you're working on a foundation that it, this exists, the infodemic exists, uh, and the impact it's having on us, which I, I, I surmise from what you're writing here that it's, it's a significant impact. Yeah, so this is actually uh, the third in a series of studies released by the Media Ecosystem Observatory looking at misinformation in in Canada around the pandemic. This study is particularly interesting because what we tried to do is to understand the extent to which the Canadian kind of political elite and journalism and sort of influencers were producing and spreading misinformation as compared to sources coming from the United States. So what we did is we did large-scale surveys. So the surveys used in this study are about 17,000 Canadians, a representative sample for sure plus an enormous amount of Twitter uh, usership. So we looked at the 200,000 most prolific Canadian Twitter users and everyone that they followed, and then we looked at the types of content that they were producing online. Uh, What was really interesting about the study and a bit of an innovation is that we geolocated people based on their biographies or their self-identified location on Twitter. And so what what we can do is we can sort of generate a global map of where Canadians are following people. So are they from the United States? Are they from France? Are they from, you know, parts of Africa? Uh, or are they from Canada? And we can see how often people are engaging with that content and retweeting it. And so that's 
something that's sort of a big innovation in this study and, and led us to some pretty surprising results. Uh, one maybe not so surprising uh, because what this does, I think it, it, it validates what a lot of us have been thinking anecdotally, I guess, over the last little while. Uh, we as Canadians rely very much on, on U.S. media, don't we, for, to, to get quote-unquote information but also to exchange opinions. Absolutely. So we're, there's there's nothing wrong with this. You know, we're we're yeah. deeply culturally uh, and historically connected to the United States, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, what we find is there's actually a big difference, though, between sort of where Canadians trust and consume information from traditional media sources. So Canadians overwhelmingly consume and trust Canadian sources, but then when they go into online spaces and to social media, they tend much more towards American information. And the question we kind of ask in the study and we kind of conclude with is, okay, is this because Canadians are deeply interested in American politics? We know that they are, but why is why is social media so heavily skewed towards the United States? And we speculate that this is actually some sort of algorithmic processes that are operating on these platforms that encourage and expose Canadians to more news that's coming from the United States. There's another element to this, too, that I, I wanted to get your read on. Uh, <laughs> Because I, because I, I see this on a daily basis. I mean, anytime we express an opinion here, I'm going to get, you know, half the people think you're, you're absolutely right. The other people are going to think, oh, you're full of, you know what, in situations like this. So, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm used to this. But when you look at this and, and the stats that you've got here, uh, what I find an awful lot of the time, uh, Angus, is people that, that, you know, purport to be, you know, experts in social media say the, the mainstream media are the ones that are spreading all the, the lies and misinformation. And, of course, people that advocate for the mainstream media say, no, 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 it's social media. That's where this all is. What your study seems to indicate, both are culpable. Yeah, of course, you should be getting your information from a wide range of sources. And actually, we don't make a determination in the study about sort of if it's traditional media or social media. What we're really trying to do is to point out to people that, if you are on social media platforms, you're getting such an enormous volume of non-Canadian information. And that's okay. You, you know, we're interested in politics around the world. But the question is, you know, there's some scary statistics here. So something like 55% of retweeted content in the Canadian context uh, is from America, uh, retweeted content that contains misinformation comes from the United States. Um, Canadians follow Americans at a ratio of three to one. About 70% of Canadians follow more Americans. And there's about 20% of Canadians that follow 10 times more Americans on Twitter than, than off. And so it's this, it's this real discrepancy that we want to point out and try and get people to reflect a little bit on. Um, is that because there's this very strong interest in American politics? Of course. But is it also maybe because there's something going on unique on these platforms, which is encouraging Canadians to look elsewhere and potentially look to, to a neighbor that has incredibly polarized politics and has been a great source of misinformation during the pandemic? Do we tend to gravitate to, to those sites that substantiate our opinion, or do we go to those sites to try to form an opinion? So there's there's a lot of research uh, that's looking looking at specifically this on social media, and people do tend to gravitate towards uh, content that reinforces their existing worldview and deepens it and polarizes it. And that's just the reality of the social media space. There was this great dream, and I hope it's not entirely dead, that these space would uh, you know, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Reddit would be spaces, would be public fora for rich discussion and deliberation. But what actually we've found is that's not really the case. And when I say we, it's the social science community more broadly, that actually these, these platforms tend to steer away from deliberation and moderation and tend to encourage greater polarization and more extreme views rising to the top. 
How do we participate in this? And that's always something that's interested me. Uh, for those that gravitate, just specify on, on social media here. Uh, are we participants in this? Are we sharing our views or are we retweeting views that, that, that we feel comfortable with? So a large percentage of our sample primarily retweets. So this is the 200,000 mm. most prolific Canadians um, that largely retweet um, and share kind of content that they that they agree with. So um, the actual production content is relative, like a, a smaller percentage of overall kind of activity on Twitter. And this is this is uh, even more so true on Facebook, where you know you're part of groups or or um, you know you're liking pages and etc. So so in that in that way, it's a very much a consumption oriented. But there are a large number of Canadians um, that. Uh, and, you know, in other work, I'm looking at the degree to which they're representative that, that do actively kind of produce and engage in content. Um, and these, you know, we can think of them maybe as influencers or not, but but these people are deeply passionate about politics and try to sort of push their worldview. And there's nothing wrong with that. And actually, that, that really should be celebrated. Yeah, I have no problem with people that, you know, whether they want to watch MSNBC or Fox News or go to those web pages, whatever the case might be. Uh, information is power, and the more information you can get. But I, I just tend to find that an awful lot of the people that, to use those two examples, uh, that watch MSNBC don't want to watch Fox. And, and, and conversely, those that are fans of Fox News uh, don't want to watch those other networks, too. We just seem to be more comfortable, uh, you know, gravitating to those places that, that hold the views that we have. And uh, But I guess you have to go back a little bit to find out exactly how those views were, were initiated in the first place and how they got to feeling that way. Was it exposure to those those sites and to those conversations on social media? Or is it something that they brought to the table when they, they started going onto social media? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a bit of a chicken and an egg there yeah, where uh -huh. participating in these spaces can reinforce the views. I think, actually, the example you used is very illustrative of kind of one of the things we're pointing out with this study, which is that probably everyone in your audience knows what MSNBC and Fox News are and what ideological perspectives they are espousing. So that's very interesting because we, we, we are in an environment where those are media sources from another country that primarily focus on issues from that country and are not at all interested in Canadian events other than the occasional scandal. And so the fact that, you know, we're so deeply tied to that e information ecosystem from the United States means that Canadians writ large are somewhat vulnerable when we have a situation like deep polarization that is occurring and deep kind of partisan divides and animosity that are that, that exist there. And, you know, is this also driving a wedge between Canadians? Is this producing a, a situation here in terms of domestic politics where we are we are becoming more antagonistic to one another. And I think that is something that's worth reflecting on and maybe trying to distance yourself a little bit and say, you know, there's a lot going on down south, but maybe we should focus on our domestic issues and our domestic politics because they're not necessarily leaders in this space, but they're actually generating very negative content. But is there also a danger, Angus, in doing that, is that we st tend to look at a circumstance which is certainly impacting us here in Canada through a U.S. lens because that's where we're getting our information and our opinions from? Absolutely. I mean, this this is this is an enormous problem is is when we are constantly being shown the American perspective on an issue. Um, so you know people are familiar with the amendments, for example, but might not be able to, to speak to the rights um, and and limits on those rights we have here in Canada. And so that that really um, changes the way we think about politics, and it is going to make people less able to vote, less able to sort of uh, voice their opinions in the Canadian context. And so I think that's that's a real danger. 
And part of that too, I guess, it would, and a spinoff from from what you just said here, uh, is that there are differences uh, between not just Canadian and American perspectives, but uh, Canadian laws, Canadian policies, etc., versus American policies. Uh, but if we're going to look at those and 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 lean too heavily towards the American side of things, uh, we do we do that at our own peril because we don't have a full understanding on. on uh, the laws and, and and the mores and and the policies in this country in particular, uh, which which uh, but we're still going to have opinions on them. But it's 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 not going to be an educated opinion or an informed opinion. No, absolutely not. And and there are issues where the interests of the two countries diverge slightly. So we can imagine like Arctic security or energy security, where actually there are different interests in the two in the two places. And so primarily getting information from U.S. news might might limit um, Canadians' understanding of of their own national interests. Again, one of the one of the things that I want to emphasize is this is this is a choice. I mean, Canadians are choosing to consume American information, and that's that. There's that's great, and there's nothing wrong with that at, at all. The question is, are social media platforms, through their very design and algorithmic kind of feeding of the news, are they promoting American news consumption as opposed to Canadian? And that that to me is is a little bit dangerous, and just something we we need to keep an eye on. We have laws in Canada to promote. Uh, laws and regulations to promote the production of Canadian content, to promote the construction of a national identity. And these are things that the government uh, generally enjoy fairly large support amongst the population, but no such dynamics exist in uh, in social media spaces. And so this is just sort of a reflection that we need to have as a society. Is this something that is important to us? And maybe should the, the, the thumb that is on the scale already on these social media platforms, maybe should that be adjusted a little bit? Well, exactly, and and your point's well taken. I mean, you know, past governments have done that with music uh, content, uh, with television and, and and radio content for that matter too, uh, to ensure that they are protecting what they call the the Canadian brand uh, and Canadian culture in situations like this. Uh, I, I was fascinated by an exercise that that you guys took part in, which was actually part of the of the survey, uh, where you asked a number of questions. I think it was eight different questions, uh, which basically were going to give people, I, I guess, and uh, give your team a perspective as as to how much they are leaning on social media uh, and these were questions about COVID-19 and these are some of the things that I have seen uh, that are being put forth on social media uh, most of them untrue uh, but uh, still a, a, a big following of people that said well I saw it on social media so it must be right uh, you know things like uh, drinking water every 15 minutes is going to prevent coronavirus uh, uh, you know uh, and uh, the coronavirus was caused by the consumption of bats in China on and on and on like this some interesting responses to that yeah for sure so so it's very difficult to sort of talk about misinformation over a long period of time because it is so adaptable and because it changes. And, you know, there's this rumor mill that, that produces these, these, these misperceptions. Um, but we tried to sort of identify a set of ideas that emerged early on in the pandemic and seem to have sort of sustained. And we asked people, hey, do you believe this? What do you think about this? So we can create kind of an index of misperceptions around, around COVID-19. So that's, that's how kind of we measured that in the mass population. Of course, um, you know, people can critique the exact measures that we used and can talk, you know, about the benefits of vitamin C. Or, um, but the bottom line is that we try to choose kind of measures that are fairly consistent uh, across the pandemic, you know, misperceptions that have been there since the beginning and also, you know, have been fairly well refuted in sort of mainstream science through the peer review process, uh, through medical journals, et cetera, um, which is sort of the best tool that we have right now for, for sort of a decentralized, trust-based uh, scientific approach. What was your takeaway from this? After all the work that's, that you and, and your colleagues have done on this and, and the report that, uh, that I read, today, the 10-page report that I read about this, uh, what, what, what do you take away? What's, what's your conclusions that you are drawing from, from the, the data that you gathered? 
Yeah, so this has been this has been a long project. I think I think the biggest thing is that social media spaces are having a large and very possibly negative effect on the mass population's understanding of uh, COVID nineteen, which you know we we argue has has likely led to increased spread and increased death. Um, and they are doing so in a in a in a way that is kind of ungoverned um, and uh, not transparent. And really what I take away from this, um, we have seen repeatedly these social media platforms playing a large role in public discourse, but they are doing so as private entities beyond the control or response of any democratic norm. I'm not saying governments should crack down these platforms and should you know, deeply regulate them and Im- impose draconian moderation mechanisms. I'm saying that we need to have a better conversation about this stuff and there does need to be some reflection and change. These these platforms are promoting uh, or are encouraging the spread of misinformation, and they are encouraging this sort of like um, reduction of consumption of Canadian content. And are these things that we're comfortable with, and we want to you know we want to have so so that, that's kind of the the big picture for me. I think there's a lot of great science that's going on in these, um, and so you know I encourage listeners to take, take a look. It's an open access piece. Uh, called infodemic pathways and, and you can find it pretty easily online um, but but I think that's my big takeaway is we, we just we really need to think more about the effect that these social media platforms are having on our society and to what extent we want to govern or democratically oversee them exactly and and which is exactly what I did by the way informatic pathways and it's it's just google that and you're going to get this a uh, very very fascinating and very insightful uh, report about what's going on and how it's impacting our daily lives uh, a pleasure to have you on the program angus thank you so much for the great work that you and your colleagues have done on this and uh, thanks for spending some time with us today thank you it was really my pleasure Take care. Angus Bridgman is a PhD candidate in political science at McGill University and, of course, one of the co-authors of uh, this study. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.